Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 33. We continue on in the saga of Jacob. And our reading this morning will begin at uh, chapter 33 and verse 1. Hear now God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before you corporately this morning, bringing ourselves and our hearts and our circumstances and our requests. We come to You knowing that You are God Almighty, that You are not limited in Your power, and You love us. And so You deign to hear our prayers and You listen to our requests and we bring them to You knowing that You know what is good and right and true and You know the best way forward. You know what is for our good and what is for your glory. And so we bring our requests and leave them with you and ask that you would work. Our passage today is on the topic of reconciliation. and We recognize in our own lives the need for reconciliation in many ways. We recognize on a grand scale in this world that there are wars, that in Russia and Ukraine there is a war going, that in Israel there is a war going. And we recognize that there is a need for reconciliation on a grand scale, on a political scale, and we can't bring that about ourselves. And so we submit it to you and ask that you would bring peace, that you would protect the innocent, that those who are suffering through those times would uh, know peace again, and, and in that peace they would have opportunity to hear the gospel, to come to know you, to know that great joy. We pray that you would bring reconciliation and peace in these, these major conflicts, these wars. We recognize that also in our own lives we have many uh, needs personally for reconciliation. We have relationships that are strained and those that perhaps are broken. And we need to 
be reconciled with particularly our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we, though there are things we can do to pursue that, we can, we can do our part, yet in the end we know it's ultimately yours to accomplish as it involves the hearts of at least two people. And so we ask that you would bring reconciliation in those relationships we have where perhaps there has entered a break, a breach, there needs to be reconciliation between brothers and sisters in Christ. We recognize as well that there are many in our circle and perhaps even in this room who are in need of being reconciled to you, who are at enmity with you, are at odds with you, that they're in open rebellion against you, or perhaps not open but secret rebellion. Those who in, uh, in their hearts deny your place as Lord, deny that you indeed are God, deny that uh, one day they will stand before you and give an account, and they need reconciliation with you. And that is also something we can't accomplish on our own. We know that that uh, is a work of yours, and yet we do have this gospel message. We do have opportunity to, uh, to share the gospel with those around us that can be uh, useful in your hands to redeem sinners, and we pray that you indeed would do that, that you would reconcile sinners to yourself in Christ. We pray even for these gospel opportunities connected with OCC, and even with just passing out tracts. We recognize that that gospel tract that goes out is like a paper missionary, and we pray that the gospel proclaimed in those, contained in those OCC boxes and, and, uh, and in those those tracks that go out, we pray that you would use that message to draw to yourself many sinners that just as we were saved once upon a time by hearing the gospel message and you applying it to our hearts, we pray you would do that again. And so, Father, as we come to this passage and we think of reconciliation and our need for it in multiple ways, we ask that you would do your work in our hearts by your Spirit. We confess that we often may have barriers to what you would call us to do, what your word would tell us we must do. I pray that you, by your spirit, would tear those barriers down, even today. Help us as we open your word and seek to understand it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we continue on in... Uh, this saga of Jacob, and his name has been changed to Israel, and you'll see it kind of goes back and forth in regard to that, and, uh, and that's okay. But if you um, think about what Jacob has been through, and you think about the relationships uh, that he has faced, and, and here he's in this context where he's about to be confronted with his brother again, I think we can kind of help ourselves get into the right mindset when we, when we think about perhaps our own broken relationships. Maybe, maybe those that, uh, maybe it's a time in life in the distant past perhaps or, or uh, where, where there was a break in relationship and we were able to see that healed and there's been, there's been restoration made, there's been reconciliation brought about and the, the joy that comes with that. Uh, or perhaps there are circumstances in relationships where um, there exists still a breach in relationship. Perhaps there's still a broken relationship that, that needs to 
uh, be healed, someone with whom you need to be reconciled. And if we think about that, we think about what the nature of broken relationship is like and the many ways it affects our lives, we can kind of enter into Jacob's situation. He's been 20 years in a far country. He's been 20 years with the, the weight of his relationship with his brother uh, hanging over his head. And can there be a relationship more broken than his with Esau? I don't really know. But uh, Jacob's life has uh, been one broken relationship after another, one strained relationship after another. Perhaps with the exception of his mother, nearly everyone else in his life he has that kind of difficult relationship with. If you think about his father, Isaac, of course, he uh, lied to his father's face and, <clears throat> and stole a blessing that was meant for his brother. That's a break in relationship. And you think about his father-in-law, right, and, and uh, with Laban, the relationship that was a struggle from the very beginning to the very end of his time in the land there with his father-in-law. Well, you think about his wives. I mean, surely there's, there's an area where there's some respite from broken relationship, but then you think about the fact that his first wife, Leah, he doesn't love her, and she knows it. What a miserable uh, situation uh, that one is. And, and even his, the wife he cherishes the most, he still has struggles with her as well. But, but even with all those broken relationships, there, there probably is not one more damaged than his relationship with his twin brother, Esau that uh, their relationship from the very beginning, from the time in the womb, there was struggle. And then in the process of being born, there was struggle. As Esau was born first and then attached to the poor baby's heel was his brother's hand tripping him up from the beginning. And then, of course, there was the whole situation with uh, Esau being willing to sell his birthright for a bowl of beans. And that was... Jacob's idea, Jacob was happy to do that, and Esau was foolish for selling it, yes, and it was Jacob's idea. And then, even worse, when Jacob and his mom concoct this terrible scheme to steal the blessing from his brother Esau, and, and as a result of that, Esau was furious with his brother, as you might imagine, and swore to kill him at the first opportunity. As soon as dad is gone, I'm going to kill him. And he meant it. And so that's, that's the nature of their relationship. And that, that was the very cause of Jacob going into hiding, basically, for 20 years. Was that very situation right there, just how badly he had injured his brother, just how badly he had wronged his brother. And so here in Genesis chapter 33, we find that he's returning from Padanaram. He's coming back into the land, and, and he knows, and coming back in with his large family and his large flocks and herds and all this wealth and all that goes with it, he knows that when he comes back into the land, he's going to come back into an encounter with his brother, the one who vowed to kill him. And so he knows that encounter is going to happen, but the question probably on his mind was, Will it be a, an encounter of retribution or of reconciliation? And so as we uh, begin our discussion of this chapter, we see Jacob has a family at risk, a family at risk. We see that Esau is coming. Jacob lifts his eyes. He looks and behold, Esau is coming and 400 men with him. And again, he's remembering Esau's last words. 
He's remembering the, the vow to kill him. And here is Jacob. Uh, he's not on his own anymore. He's got his uh, children. He's got his wives. He's got this whole entourage. He's got all this stuff. And, and so he's got to be thinking, well, I can't even run away anymore. We're moving too slowly. It's going to happen. We're going to have the encounter. And so he lines up his family. He divides up his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he puts the servants with their children first, and he puts Leah with her children next, and then uh, Rachel and Joseph last of all. So he arranges his family, and there's discussion about whether he was, you know, I'm willing to have those children be killed or, or that wife be, be, uh, be taken. Uh, I don't know why he ordered it the way he did. Perhaps it was uh, some, something else going on, but what is surprising is after having put them in that arrangement, verse 3, he himself went on before them. We've seen before, if you remember, with the, the situation previously where he was sending droves ahead and he, and he got a huge gift of all these animals and sent them ahead and then another one and he sent it ahead and he sent it ahead and afterwards he came, remember? And he even stayed by himself and seemed like he was... He was kind of hoping that this would be a buffer between him and his brother, and perhaps that's the case, but here we see that he arranges them, and then he goes ahead of them. It seems like there's more change in Jacob. It seems like perhaps he's getting a little bit bolder. He's willing to risk himself in this process. And so he goes in the forefront, and look at his posture bowing himself to the ground seven times. He assumes a position of humility, which has not been real normal for him. And, and, uh, but he goes, and, and in this process, he's bowing himself down seven times. He's prostrating himself visibly, and he's making it known to his brother that he's coming in a posture of humility, bowing himself to the ground until he comes to his brother. And so what a uh, perhaps a change. Perhaps it's a ploy. I mean, he's wily, right? He knows how to, he knows how to uh, posture things so that he can accomplish what he wants, but it seems like he's a little bit of a changed man. He's, he's going before, so he's bold, he's brave. He's, he's going to be the first one to encounter his brother. And now he's bowing himself down. He's humbled himself. And that's pretty interesting. It's pretty unexpected. And what is equally unexpected is what we see there in verse 4. Esau ran to meet him. What, what, he's been wondering. He's, been, he's probably had this encounter in the back of his mind for the last 20 years, even though everything else has been going on. What is it going to be like when I meet my brother? But he finally meets him. He's bowing himself to the ground. But Esau, verse 4, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. That here's this reunion that, that is unexpected. Esau's actions are not what, what we would think they would be, and perhaps probably not what Jacob thought they would be. They, 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 they embrace, and there's, there seems to be reunion. There seems to be joy there, and there's weeping, and, and, and they're, they're back together. In verse 5, when Esau lifted up his eyes... And saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And so there's a, a, a posture that he's taking that even here 
if you'll notice how Jacob talks, he takes himself out of the position of equal. And remember, he's the one with the birthright. He's the one with the blessing. He's the one that the, the older brother is actually going to bow down to. But what is, how does Jacob refer to himself? As your servant. As your servant. And he will, he will refer to Esau again and again throughout this conversation as my Lord. Now, Esau doesn't do that. Esau calls him my brother, my brother, my brother. But Jacob has this a position of humility. He's coming in a different posture than we might expect. But he says these uh, these uh, that, that you're asking about, that you see here, they are the children God has given me. Then the servants drew near, verse 6, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And at last Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And so you have a posture of humility, and the whole family assumes this posture. The, all the kids bow down, the wives bow down, and all of this stuff. And so knowing that his family is at risk, Jacob is anxious to put on a humble front, but he's also anxious as we continue that Esau understand there is also a gift offered. There is a gift offered. And so Jacob has already commented, or Esau has already commented on these who are with you, all these children and these wives and all that stuff, who are they? But now he turns to verse 8 and he says, what do you mean by all this company or camp that I met? Remember the droves that were sent to him? He's commenting, he's already talked about family, now he's talking about all this stuff. Why did you send present after present after present after present to me? Why did you send all these flocks, all these herds, all these huge gifts? What do you mean by all this company that I met? What are you trying to accomplish? And Jacob tells him right up front to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Jacob is seeking his brother's favor. He makes no bones about it. Very interesting that he would be so up front. This Jacob, who is such a trickster, and here he explains, I'm, I'm giving you those gifts. I sent them to you so that uh, I could find favor in your sight. He's... He's humbled himself. He's being generous. You remember all that Jacob has gone through. From the very beginning, we've seen him scrabbling and, 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 and tricking and doing everything he can to enrich himself. And now he's giving it away for the sake of his brother's favor. It's very, very interesting. And of course, he, he offers that and he says, this is why I'm doing it in, in Esau balks at it at first. Esau doesn't buy it right off the bat. He says, uh, verse 9, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. I have enough. Keep what you have for yourself. You don't need to give me these gifts. You don't need to pile this stuff on. I have enough. I've been taken care of. And Jacob answered, verse 10, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Jacob has the opportunity to keep all of his wealth, to keep all of his riches, but he doesn't. That's not what he wants to do. He values reconciliation with his brother more than he values all of those possessions. Even though he fought so hard against his brother, against his father, against his father-in-law, to have all this stuff, yet he values that less than he values his brother's favor. And he makes an interesting comment. 
Having insisted now that, no, I really do mean it, take it. If I've found favor in your, fight, uh, in your sight, accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Now, that's a strange statement. Esau doesn't bear any resemblance to God, really, except for this. What happened last night? Where was Jacob last night? He was wrestling God at a place he later named Peniel, because I have seen the face of God and yet I have lived. That Jacob, having just come through this experience where he last night had spent the night wrestling with God and come to realize at some point that he was wrestling God and he knew he should die and yet he lived. He realized God had had mercy, that God had every right to kill him. God had all the power to kill him, and yet God had spared him. And now Jacob approaches his brother, who has all the right to kill him, who has 400 armed men with him. He has the power to kill him. He has opportunity to kill him. And yet Esau has been gracious. Esau has been kind to Jacob. And so Jacob says, seeing your face is like seeing God's face. I lived through that. It was amazing. It's just wondrous. It was, it was grace and mercy that I lived through it. And here I am in your presence. I've been fearing you for 20 years. And I've been accepted in your sight. What an amazing thing. What an amazing conversation that happens between these two I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please, he says in verse 11, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. It's so interesting that he says, please accept my blessing. He, he doesn't say, please accept my gift, though he says that in other, in other times, and that's normal. Please accept this offering. That would be normal too. But what does he say? Please accept my blessing. What's the fight about? The fight between brothers is about the fact that Jacob stole the blessing from Esau. He's been, he's been grabbing after that blessing, and it's as if Jacob now in, in this reconciliation is saying, you can have it back. Please accept my blessing. Please accept the fruit of my blessing, this blessing and all that, that has come with it, you can have these things. Please accept those. He's trying to make amends with his brother. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Esau finally relents. Esau agrees to take it. And so for Jacob, this encounter is going better than he ever could have hoped, but he's not quite done yet. There is still a plea to be made. Look at verse 12. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Now, the Hebrew there is a little bit weird. Um, it, it, it can be translated, I'll go ahead of you, as in I'll be, I'll be up there before you get there. Or uh, it could be translated, I think it's better translated like the NIV translates it. I don't often side with the NIV, but if you've got the NIV, it's right here in your presence. I'll go with you in your presence. We'll go together. Let's, let's go together is what he's offering. 
Let us journey on our way, and I will go together with you, I think is a better translation there. Verse 13, but Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail. The nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. And if they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. You see, Esau wants to go with him, and and Jacob, for whatever his motivation is, wants them to separate. He wants them to separate. He said, no, no, you'll have to go ahead. You you and your men uh, have been traveling fast, and you're used to traveling fast, and you'll just be frustrated if you stay slow. And I can't go fast because all my flocks and herds will die. It'll be tough on my children and all this stuff. Verse 14, let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant. I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. And so Jacob wants to, uh, wants to go on and continue in peace. Esau wants to stay with him and travel on together. Uh, but Jacob doesn't, doesn't want to do that. He wants to separate, uh, perhaps for the protection, as he states here, the protection of his flocks, protection of his family. He has this plea to make for the good of his uh, his flocks. And, and actually, one, one commentator had an interesting observation that for all of Jacob's flaws, he is a good shepherd. He is a good shepherd. And so we see in verse 15 that Esau relents a little bit. Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. So I'll just leave some of my soldiers with you. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed on to to Sakat and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sakat. So they separate. They've had this encounter and and all this buildup and all this expectation, all this fear and all this anxiety that that has been, no doubt, in Jacob's mind. the, the, the encounter has happened. And just, a, just a comment as an aside right here. How often when you're in a relationship or perhaps a broken relationship that needs to be healed, that needs to be reconciled, you, you build up in your mind how awful it's going to be. The more you think about it, the more the anxiety grows, the more the fear grows, perhaps more the wrongs grow, perhaps all of those things. And that probably was the case here too, but then it happened. And they've, they've parted ways, and, and they've parted ways at peace. They each go their different directions. And so we see that ultimately Esau is going to go back to Seir, and, and Jacob takes a different turn, though he did say he was going to go to Seir. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he was really tricking Esau there. I don't think he was really lying about that there. Um, though it's hard to say for sure, but later on in, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 36 and uh, verses 6 and 7, commenting on this exact exchange, we see uh, at the end of verse 6 there talking about Esau. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So I don't, I don't want to rip on Jacob too much. Now, Jacob is is capable of lying. He's capable of deception and all that stuff, and, and we know that. And the author is capable and not above telling us Jacob was in the wrong. Jacob was being deceitful, but here he doesn't. And so I think, I think there's something else going on, but nevertheless, whatever uh, has happened, however it came to pass, 
Uh, Jacob has made his plea for the safety of his family and his flocks, and they indeed do separate, go their different directions, and Esau has left them alone. And so finally, after 20 years of this vendetta, 20 years of hatred, think in your own situation, perhaps, perhaps there is a broken relationship that is 20 years in the making. Maybe it's been 20 years that you've known you need to have this reconciliation with this person, but you've just been nursing it, you've been ignoring it, you've been letting it go or expecting them to come to you or whatever. And, and, and it's been 20 years for Jacob, but these two brothers finally at the end of all that time, after, after a vow that Esau was going to kill Jacob, they're at peace. They're at peace. At the end of all that hatred and all that fear, they're in a place of peace with one another. And finally, in concluding this chapter, we read about a better inheritance. A better inheritance. Verse 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. In one sense, that's included to move him from one place to another. And we know as you look down at the, the headline of the next chapter, you can see that there are going to be some events that are significant happen there at Shechem. But this isn't just a comment saying, oh, he went from here to there. It's a comment about his inheritance. It's a comment about what is really going on in his, in his life. Think about where is it Jacob has just come from? Where has he been for 20 years? He's been in the land of Haran. And where did Abraham move from? That same region. And when Abraham, in chapter 12, came into the land, where's the first place he camped? Where's the first place that he arrived and, and, uh, and made his camp was in Shechem? And what did he do back in chapter 12 when Abraham arrived with his, with his entourage and he got there into the land and he's, he set up his camp? What did he do when he got there? He built an altar. He worshiped God. And now here, all these years later and, and generations later, you have Jacob who's been in the far country. He's been in the region of Haran. He's been in Paddan Aram. He has come into the land and, and entering into the land, when he first arrives in the land of Canaan, where does he go? He goes to Shechem. And he sets up a, an altar. And he worships God there and he names the altar El Elohi Israel. That is to say, uh, the, the, the altar is to God, the God of Israel. Jacob finally, Jacob who's also known as Israel, finally takes God as his God. No longer is there any distance between between him and God. This isn't the God of my fathers. This isn't the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. This isn't the fear of Isaac, as he said before. This is God, the God of Israel. My God is what he's saying. So he sets up an altar there, erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So the inheritance that he's been scrambling for was not primarily about goods, was not primarily about power. 
though often in his mind that's exactly what it was about. It wasn't about position or anything like that. The, the true inheritance from his fathers. What really matters is that now he has that relationship with their God. That that God is not just their God. That God, Yahweh, is his own God. That's the inheritance. That's the better inheritance that he has received. It's taken him all these years to learn that. It's taken him all these years as God has made him rich and God has seen him through great difficulties and as he's, he's tricked his brother and he's lied to his dad and he's stolen from his brother and he's, he's had to finagle against his father-in-law and all of that kind of stuff. Finally, he has God. And having God as his God, he comes back into the land. He enters into the land just like Abraham. He's, he's like a new Abraham. He's the new patriarch coming back into the land with God as his own. And you've heard it said that the man who has nothing but has God has everything. The man who has everything but does not have God has nothing. He has that inheritance. God is an inheritance more to be valued than flocks, than herds, than riches, than a life of abundance and prosperity and peace. God himself is a better inheritance than that. Having a knowledge of God as your God is the greatest possession that anyone could ever have. And Jacob finally has that greatest possession. So that's the story of Genesis 33. What about the application? How does it, how does it apply to us? What do we, what do we learn from this uh, example? Well, I think the first thing we learn and the most important thing for us to learn in this is be reconciled to God. That finally we have Jacob. This is a story of reconciliation, but, but it's not really primarily reconciliation between him and his brother, though that's a major point, right? That's right on, on the, 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 the forefront of this. But what's the conclusion of it that we learn for the first time that Jacob has God as his God? And you may need to be reconciled to God in Christ as well. Paul speaks of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says, God through Christ has reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. He's talking about the the fact that mankind and, and, and people individually have offended God and thus are at odds with God in their very nature, that they're born that way and they pursue that in their own lives. And, and, and when they sin against God, when they refuse to believe in God, when they, when they go about their own way and rebel against Him, they're, they're creating this massive breach that is terrible news for the sinner. Because God is righteous and God is holy and, and, and sin must be punished. But God was at work reconciling those people to Himself in Christ. That He gave Christ for that purpose, that Jesus came and obeyed where we've disobeyed and died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, to, to bear the wrath of God ourselves. And he, he, he gives us 
forgiveness. He gives us life in Christ. He gives us, to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciliation with God in Christ. That because of what Christ has done by faith in Him, God goes from being the one we've been rebelling against, the one who, who was judge over us, who would, who would stand and, 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 and tick off all of our sins and, and render judgment for those things. By faith in Christ, suddenly that God who was judge becomes God our Father who loves us. And we are reconciled to Him. And moreover, he says in verse 20 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. When you hand out a gospel tract, when you share the gospel with someone, even that OCC box that you don't see when it gets there, it's got the gospel contained in it, you are imploring, you are making an appeal. And so Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That Jesus would stand right in that place, bearing the punishment for my sin, though he himself was perfectly righteous and clean and innocent and pure, yet my sin was placed on him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God revealed saving us and we become a demonstration of that righteousness. And so the first point of application here is be reconciled to God. If if you don't know Christ, if you're still in that position where you're keeping Him at arm's length, you need to be reconciled. You need to put your faith in Christ, trust in Him. He has accomplished all the work. Believe in Him. Trust in Him and the reconciliation that He provides. That's the first application. The second application, be reconciled to one another. Be reconciled to one another. According to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 23 and 24, it is crucial that Christians be reconciled to one another. These are His words there. Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The greatest commandment, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, that's you and me. We need to be reconciled to one another. And so we've talked from the beginning of today about those relationships perhaps that, that, that are broken or, or strained or need to be reconciled. I think we can, we can learn some, some points even from watching what Jacob does here. There's, he does a lot of things right in this passage that some things that we need to keep in mind as we go and reconcile with someone perhaps that we've wronged or perhaps who's wronged us. What can we observe from Jacob's life, from, uh, from what goes on here? These are pointed out too obviously for them to be accidental. First, pray. You saw Jacob do that in 32. He stops and he prays about it, remembering God's promises, expressing his fears, his concerns, and asking God to help him pray. So this relationship or these relationships that you have that are strained, that are broken, Maybe someone very dear to you. Maybe, maybe the pain is too much 
and you just don't want to do it. You think you can't do it. Maybe you've wronged them so much that you just can't do it. Pray. God is greater than your heart. Secondly, humble yourself. We saw consistently throughout this chapter Jacob bowing down, his family bowing down. You saw Jacob use language of himself that was, that was putting himself in a position of submission to his brother, calling him my Lord, referring to himself as your servant. Esau didn't do that. Esau was saying, my brother, you're my brother. Humble yourself. And so often, folks, isn't that the hard part about reconciliation? You have to perhaps eat a little bit of crow. <laughs> you have to have some humble pie there. Humble yourself. Thirdly, give and receive grace. You can't really see it in the English necessarily, <clears throat> but in this chapter there is a swirl of the word grace. Grace and favor. How often does Jacob refer here to the fact that he is seeking his brother's favor? That's akin to the word grace. And even when he describes this family, this is the family God has graciously given to me. There's a swirl of grace language in this chapter that's unlike really anywhere else in Genesis. He is he's ready to receive grace and he's ready to give grace. And folks, you and I need to be there as well when we, when we are reconciling if your attitude in the reconciliation is, it's my way or the highway, you will not have reconciliation. That's called an ultimatum. That's not going to accomplish it. You've got to be willing to come, ready to give grace and ready to receive it. How often is, is the difficulty of uh, the reconciliation the part that, that I just uh, feel like I can't be forgiven by this person? Be ready to give and receive grace. Fourthly, be persistent. Jacob kept coming at his brother. No, no, I mean it. Here, it's all yours. It's all yours. It's, I, 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 I'm giving this to you. Please accept my blessing because I stole your blessing, remember, 20 years ago? Accept my blessing. Be persistent. And finally, be willing to sacrifice for the sake of reconciling a relationship. You saw what Jacob does, that he gives drove after drove after drove after drove. This very thing that he's been, he's been wrestling to maintain his wealth, he gives away. Be willing to sacrifice. Now, he still has boundaries, doesn't he? His brother said, yeah, we'll travel together. And let's go on together to Seir, and you can come be my neighbor and, and, and whatever. And, and, and Jacob says, no, I don't want to do that. And he gives his reasons, and he goes a different direction. There are boundaries still. He's not... He's not giving away the farm, but he's willing to sacrifice for the sake of reconciling that relationship. He's willing to give in ways that are even painful. And folks, often, often you and I are just not willing to give what it takes to be reconciled. And so if we will pray first and humble ourselves, if we will be ready to give and receive grace, if we will be persistent, if we will be willing to sacrifice for the sake of reconciling that relationship, if you pursue those things, I think you'll be well prepared to pursue reconciliation with someone who has harmed you, someone that you've harmed, or maybe 
circumstances have just caused this difficulty. Third point of application. We ought to end up in the exact same place that Jacob ends up. I don't mean Shechem. (laughs) Worshiping. Worshiping. Jacob's language throughout this whole chapter has been shaped by his awareness of God's blessing upon him. And he's been been willing to give away all that he has, uh, all all of these possessions. He, He recognizes that God is the one who has given him these possessions. By God's grace, he has his family, he has his wealth, he has his very life. God has seen him through hard times and tough spots, and God has wrestled with him, and he's blessed him at the end of it. And Jacob has come to realize that God's hand of blessing has been over his life from the start. And so finally, he comes to recognize that Yahweh is not just the God of his grandfather, not just the God of his father, but that Yahweh is El Elohi Israel, that God is his God. And so he bows down and worships him. The same ought to be true for us, that God has blessed us in profound ways. But none more profound than that blessing that we have in Jesus our Lord, who has reconciled us to God at the cost of His own life and His own death. That Jesus, like Jacob, represented a mass of people in danger from an offended party. With Jacob, it was Esau. With us and Jesus, the offended party is God. And like Jacob, he humbled himself. Remember Philippians chapter 2? Turn to Philippians 2 and we will close there. We've been talking about this uh, over and over again in evening church because it is a powerful powerful testimony of what Christ has done for us. Verse 6, Christ Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jacob humbled himself and bowed down. And Jesus humbled Himself infinitely more so, didn't He? Bowed Himself down, deigning to become one of us. And just as Jacob paid a ransom to free his family, we see Jesus pay a ransom to free us. Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jacob does all of this for the sake of his family, and Jesus does infinitely more for our sake. And so let's you and I come to understand what Christ has done for us and that even now, where is Jesus seated? We, we saw in our story that, that Jacob, at the end of it all, made a plea for his family. He wanted to take care of his family. No, it would be too hard to work him that hard to move that fast. Let's don't do that. Instead, let's separate. He was pleading for his family. And is Jesus, Jesus pleading for us? Jesus is pleading for us. Hebrews 7, 25. For He is able to save 
to the uttermost, all those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. Folks, the blessings that Jacob knew were wondrous. They were, they were glorious and they were powerful and they were, they were huge. And they were mostly just symbolic, pointing to the great truth that we have. They happened in his life. They were real in his life, but they pointed beyond themselves to the peace that you and I have, not with the offended party of our brother that we've done wrong, but the offended party of God himself, who through the reconciliation of Christ has become our Father. And so our last point of application is to worship him, to worship him. Praise God that he has gone through this for us, that he has reconciled us to himself. He undertook to accomplish it, to bring it about, and we get to be those who benefit from it. And so as we have this great reconciliation with God and we in Christ have this reconciliation with one another, let's, let's exercise it with one another as well. Let's be reconciled not only to God, certainly to God first and last, but to one another as well. Let's pray. Father, we have looked at something of a resolution in this uh, conflict between Jacob and his brother Esau that, that was Jacob's fault, that he brought about, he caused, that he, uh, in stealing that blessing from his brother and lying to his father, created a, a mortal enemy. And yet through the years you worked in Jacob's heart, you changed him and apparently worked in Esau's heart such that there is reconciliation between, between the one who had the death warrant and the one who had the right to kill him. And we rejoice that we, because of Christ, though we had a death warrant on us, though we, though we deserved to die, yet Christ has reconciled us to you, and he did so at the expense of his own dying. Thank you for the grace of God that is ours in Christ. Help us, Father, as we seek to convey this message of reconciliation to a dying world around us. Make that gospel message effective, we pray, for saving sinners, even, even here, even this morning. We pray also that you would work on our hearts that we would seek to be reconciled to one another where we need that. If we need to give and receive forgiveness. We need to humble ourselves before one another. We need to be persistent. We need to be in prayer. We need to be willing to give and receive grace. We need to be willing to sacrifice for those things. And Father, in Christ and because of your work in our hearts, we want to. And so we ask that you would help us, empower us, that we would indeed show our unity before uh, this world, that they would look at us, your children, they would see how we love one another and they would, they would come to understand that we are your children. We rejoice that we get to be your children. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front to pray with you. I would remind you about evening service tonight. Otherwise, God bless you all and you are dismissed.